0: Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the Liberty, and joining me today is Corey. Hey, not grinding. (laughs) Hey, good to see you too, Fonzie. (laughs) Uh, On today's episode, we'll be chatting about the latest update from the R-Evil Ransomware saga, a brand new APT organization as discovered by ESET with yet another fantastic name, and then a CISA alert on more ransomware. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and jump on in. So let's start with a update from a long-standing event. Uh, last week, the Washington Post published an article that disclosed that the FBI had access to R Evil's master decryption key for about three weeks before they handed it over to Kaseya and other victims of that ransomware variant. Um, so if you remember, Kaseya had previously stated that they received the key from a, quote, trusted third party, but didn't provide any details on that other than being very vocal about confirming they did not pay any ransom to acquire this. Um, as part of Washington Post article, they said the FBI obtained the key through accessing uh R Evils servers. So kind of what we had guessed. Like we put a lot of this kind of together based off their statement. Like it sounded like they probably got it from a government agency. And if that were the case, it means the government agency probably had hacked into RV Evil's infrastructure or communications and stolen it out of there. So
1: probably not the NSA brute forcing encryption. Yes, probably <laughs> not supercomputers that no one knows about the that quantum are just more computers. powerful than everything else that we know exists. Exactly.
0: <laughs> Um, so it looks like at least based off this Washington Post article, like a lot of those kind of educated guesses we made turned out to be true. Um, but it's interesting that they held on to it for three weeks before giving it. Now they gave a reason for it. They said they didn't want to tip off our evil that they had access to their infrastructure because they were planning this upcoming operation to disrupt them once and for all. Uh, that operation never ended up materializing though because our evil themselves just went offline in about mid July without any us government uh, intervention at all um so that article quoted a unnamed source that was familiar with the matter who said the question we asked each time so in the context of should we give this key out or sit on it what would be the value of the key if disclosed how many victims are there who could be helped and on the flip side what would be the value of a potential longer term operation to disrupting the ecosystem those are the questions we continue to have in balance which, man, I honestly, I I just don't envy whoever ends up having to make these decisions because it is like you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. Yes, you could help out the people that have been hit by ransomware already, or you could potentially stop that ransomware family from continuing on forward. That said, like we as we discuss a lot of these variants, they uh, the their developers live in Eastern European countries that aren't necessarily on the best terms with the U S in terms of actually prosecuting these individuals. So I'm not sure long-term how much damage they could have done. Like, yes, maybe they would have stopped our evil, but our evil went dark themselves. But in reality, like what's the stop of them just popping back up under a different name. Now it's a, no, like I'm it's sure a, they have popped up under exactly. a different name already. As, as far as we know, like even um, FBI director, Christopher Ray, he testified in front of Congress recently, saying that, uh, among other things, basically confirming the whole, you know, we have to choose between helping these few or potentially disrupting it long-term. But he actually said something that Washington Post ripped apart in their article. So he said that um, testing and validation of the decryption key contributed to some of the delay. He said, quote, there's a lot of engineering that's required to develop a tool that can be used by victims. Um, And he he said during that hearing, uh, but Washington Post pointed out they, they then contacted Emisoft, so the organization Kaseya brought in to try and help out, yep. reverse engineer and decrypt these files. Emisoft said that uh, they received the tool from the FBI, extracted the key from uh, what the FBI gave them, created their own decryptor, and tested it, all within about 10 minutes. And they said, quote, uh, the process was speedy because we, had, we were familiar with our evil, but, quote, if we had to go from scratch, it would have taken about four hours. So it kind of throwing shade on the FBI there for, oh, it took us two weeks to test and confirm. For that particular statement, I think they deserve it. But for the,
1: I, I actually have a, a little sympathy for them for the first statement. I mean, if if you've been a executive uh, or a manager, or God forbid you're the president, there everyone wants to be transparent with everyone, but there's Periods of time where you have to keep secrets for the benefit of the people you work for. Like if you're the president, the country, right? And sometimes us pundits as citizens kind of uh, bitch out and second guess guess a president's, you know, intentions or why they made this decision that seems so stupid But when you have situations like secret investigations and the type of thing where you're trying to track down a threat actor without them knowing, there's a lot of details we don't know that could make a decision make more sense than we think, you know, on the surface. Holding it for 3 weeks sounds horrible. I mean, Kaseya, we know there were at least 1500 organizations affected, let alone the 30-some MSPs, and we know there's lots of revel or evil victims beyond. Kaseya, I believe this was probably just the private key for the Kaseya one, but maybe it could have maybe it affected those decryptors too. So it sounds like really bad because I think the government should help those citizens if they can. And yet, you got to respect the chance that there was something that they had to keep hidden for this thing. The sucky thing when it comes to this kind of secret government op is we don't know the truth, right? We don't know, is this just the excuse they're using? Did they really have a big chance of this interrupting or, or, or tipping our evil off? Or is this just kind of the excuse they're making now that the news is out? And I I, I mean, I'm sure everyone to have an opinion on that. But uh, I, can, I can believe their excuse for why they held it. On the flip side, when you have that second statement, which any technical person that's dealt with ransomware before knows that once you have the private key, it doesn't take that long to, at least with the right experts, get a decryptor tool. You know, the second statement, when you... When we have to trust that what you're telling us is true without us knowing the facts because it's secret, you better not. You better make every statement after that pretty true. Yeah. Otherwise, we might not trust your initial thing. So I, I, I do tend to trust what they're saying, that they really wanted to catch these guys. And that's why they had this tough decision that no one would want to make. But maybe you do have to make it. But that what their response with that second part throws everything. It throws
0: a little bit of doubt, right? You got to wonder, like, what chance they actually had, though. Like, I guess there have been some ransomware, uh, major ransomware organizations that were based out of Ukraine where we can go and arrest them and prosecute them. But it feels like, I mean, I... This is probably just confirmation bias, but it feels like a lot of these organizations are based out of Russia, where even if we name and shame them, like literally nothing will happen. So what's the point?
1: Well, I mean, I I think it's the either FBI via NSA. I mean, we have a top 10 of Russian people. Uh, A lot of them are part of the government that are, are known according to us, according to the evidence we say we have actors in some nation state attacks that we're saying, hey, these people should be prosecuted. And yet, because they're in Russia, nothing's ever going to happen unless they leave that country. <laughs> so I, I do agree with you, right? I mean, even if they but perhaps they weren't trying to catch them, more use their infrastructure to follow them and continue disrupting operations or or learn about when they did leave. It's hard to know. I mean, it's all it's either way, it's going to be all speculation by you and me. The truth is, someone like the president can have secret intelligence or, or, or someone like the FBI by connection can have secret intelligence that we don't know that makes a stupid decision, actually a, a stupid seeming decision from the outside world be actually correct. And that's a possibility. And yet sometimes people use that as an excuse to hide dumb decisions too, because they have the benefit of everything being secret. I, I don't think I, I, we simply don't know here. Uh, I don't like that second thing they mentioned because it is provably true that it takes weeks to figure out a decryptor is, is provably untrue. But for the first one, I guess we just have to take them on the surface statement. It would have been nice, though, I'm sure, if they got it early. You know, all those victims, I'm sure, are a little peeved because it certainly would have been nice for them.
0: Yeah, three weeks is a long time. Like, obviously, they were doing their best to recover during that period using, like, backups or whatever else they had access to. But you have to imagine of those, what is it, 1,500 yeah. or so organizations, a sizable number of and them probably didn't have And
1: Because themselves, right? They, they felt responsible for all their MSPs customers, too. And they went through, you know... it it wouldn't lessen the impact that you had a issue in your product that affected customers. But if you, if you had this recovery method early, you know, they went through three weeks of probably sleepless nights. And (laughs) so it does it. I I get it. It sucks. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe the decision was right. We both agree. It would have been a hard decision if there were some reasons that the FBI thought they could get closer to the group, uh, or whoever else was, was working on this. But, uh,
0: it's always hard to know when the operation itself is secret. I wonder how secret it is. Can we like flex our Freedom of Information Act muscles and see what information we can get? Out I, of it? I
1: don't have a lawyer. So I, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know. But don't for confidential information. I think there's a time period, right? Maybe ten years from now, <laughs> we can flex that method because eventually information does go declassified in a way that it. But I think it take. I, I think if it's literally classified you don't get freedom of information there. There's exceptions that allow it to be classified for
0: a period of time before that kind of thing take kicks in. Well, that's
1: my, what I think I've read.
0: Obviously in the end, like RV, our evil went away, or at least their infrastructure went away. Like you said, I bet they're already back under some different name somewhere on a forum since no individual person was arrested or thrown in jail for this. Uh, But you could like, I really hope that at least something good came out of it. Maybe like, By holding on to this, they maintain some communication channel with one of those individuals that will allow them to disrupt additional things in the future. I guess we'll see. It is interesting, like though, how many instances lately the FBI has been able to get decryption keys for ransomware or private keys for cryptocurrency wallets, like with the Colonial Pipeline incident. Uh, they seem to be doing a decent job of hacking back, basically, of and acquiring these items. I, I agree. Uh, it, it shows we have
1: a red teaming. Like we hear a lot about how external country state sponsored actors are doing all this against us, but the truth is we are too, and and we're keeping it secret. And I, I don't know. I don't know how I, if I feel good or bad about that. I mean, I I, I do want our country to have equal red team and blue team cyber capability as adversaries because it could be a cyber war one day on the flip side you know we open pandora's box with stuxnet right i mean by normalizing this are we normalizing it for our adversaries too one of the predictions we made for a year before 2021 was uh that the UN or some cross, cross-country governmental body needs to put some sort of rules in, of engagement around cyber warfare and espionage. So like I'm not naive enough to think that we shouldn't be and other countries shouldn't have some sort of red-key mean capability, but I think it's a wild west right now. And until we put rules of engagement around war, there were war crimes. And I think all countries, even the United States, as much as I love it, as much as I, I, I'm a citizen here, I, I, I obviously support our country. I think we need rules of engagement because I don't want to normalize things that then other countries do back to us. Now, when the good news in this case, though, it's cyber criminals, right? It's not against a, every country should equally dislike criminals that steal money from organizations. Countries like Russia should not be a safe. Yeah, they might have their own politics and they might want to do cyber espionage against us and not want our government to see into their government, but they should not want ransomware authors to feel comfortable getting away with crime in their country. The fact that they do seem to have this safe Asian does, you know, make them kind of a a badder state than the average state.
0: Well basically it boils down to in that, that as long as you don't do your activity in Russia, like affect Russian citizens yeah, yeah. or even some of their allies, that's how you are allowed to live in the safe haven. Yeah,
1: and we even see that programmed in the malware, malware that's literally looking for a Cyrillic or whatever uh in in windows and it doesn't activate if yeah yeah i i agree with you But that shouldn't be the case right i mean be. no <laughs>
0: if you're a country you shouldn't want your citizens to do crimes in other countries either but <laughs> some countries do seem to play by the rule of whatever brings our opponents down benefits us yeah and so by absolutely. enabling this it, it is to the benefit of their country as annoying and sad as it is
1: i, I get you yeah But man, anyways, I I do want authorities to catch the cyber criminals no matter where they are. Yeah.
0: Well, hopefully someday we'll solve this ransomware epidemic. Someday. Maybe stop paying. Yeah. (laughs) Anyways. So moving on. Uh, Also last week on Thursday, researchers at ESET published a blog post about a new APT that they discovered um, targeting hotels and some governments and private organizations. And they gave them the name famous sparrow which i i mean I, whatever it's no worse than fancy bear but i know but by the way in one of the article i just
1: uh, we're used to this now we don't mind it but in the article where i read about this before i even got to esets blog there's there's famous sparrow there's a what is it the sparrow door uh, there was Sparkling Goblin. There's DRD. Just the amount of these silly names is overwhelming. Sparkling Goblin cracks me up. By the way, not an associate. It, it came up in an article uh, of another group that used a, a technique. We'll probably yep, be talking we'll get about to that. But yeah famous sparrow
0: excellent <laughs> names excellent naming uh but anyways so this famous sparrow they named them because of their use of that custom backdoor sparrow door they seem to be the only users of it uh, they also use two custom versions of Mimicats, which if you've listened to our podcast or read our reports you know just about everyone under the sun seems to use these days to try and steal passwords straight out of memory we
1: haven't seen as much of it lately but it used to show up very highly in our in, in what our malware detection would catch is variants of Mimikatz. And also, what's the other one?
0: Windows Credential Editor, very similar toolkit. And while uh, while Famous Sparrow seems to be a unique APT, uh, they have some association with other APT groups. So you mentioned Sparkling Goblin. Uh, so Famous Sparrow deployed a variant of the MotNug Loader, which I guess is widely <laughs> used by Sparkling Goblin. Yeah, honestly, this is my favorite part about security is all the names that collectively we can come up with. Yeah, I guess I should
1: stop. Be as long as they're not making it the marketing name that they're trying to get in the press. It is,
0: it is kind of fun. If you're a security <laughs> researcher, you got to entertain yourself somehow. Yep. Uh, they also use the same command and control domain for a, a um, Cobalt Strike beacon as used by the DRB Control APT group. Which I mean, come on, boring name. You can do better than that. <laughs> uh, anyways, uh, so in their analysis, though, they listed out. Basically, the tools, tactics, and procedures of this famous Sparrow organization. And there were some interesting tidbits in there. So first off, though, they mainly target hotels. Like they've got a few other targets in other sectors like government, international organizations, engineering companies, and law firms. But their primary target is hotels, which, I mean, I guess it makes sense. Like if you're potentially trying to track individuals or gain PII, like there's a lot of that to be had in a hotel. It, it can go both ways. It's, it's a great place for a cyber criminal to
1: just gain PII, like you said, from a cyber criminal perspective. But there's also been lots of cases of state sponsored hacking, specifically targeting hotels, because if you think about it, they're targeting diplomats, politicians, and activists who often travel to other countries, including maybe the country they're rallying against, to do stuff. So I, I remember the attacks that kind of were in. Hong Kong based or Chinese hotels that were really there because they happened to know certain diplomats would be there during a certain conference convention that was going on. So I I could see hotels being a great target both for the cyber
0: criminal threat actor and for the kind of nation state threat actor. And interestingly, there wasn't a whole lot of activity in the United States itself Uh, It seemed primarily focused. It was global, but it was primarily in Brazil, South Africa, Canada, Israel, France, and a few like Nordic countries as well. Um, And Thailand too. So, I mean, I don't know. I feel like normally America is always thrown in the lot, but it's interesting to see an APT that isn't targeting Americans in this case. Um, To be honest, for the
1: nation state actor, I usually would expect the hotel to be in other countries, including like where there would be potential dictatorship and or where they would be global conferences Uh, like, you know, the Nordics is often where they have a bunch of big leaders go
0: to. Yeah. So anyways, keep going. Uh, So they this group leverages the the proxy log and exchange vulnerabilities. In fact, they did it on March 3rd. So within a day of the patch, they were pretty early on the gun on that one. They've also targeted other remote code execution flaws in internet Exposed uh, applications like SharePoint and Oracle Opera, which is business software for hotel management. So common trend there of going after exposed resources. Um, after Compromise, they deploy a few tools. So Mimikatz, they've got their own variant of that to try and steal passwords and hashes. Uh, they use ProcDump to, again, dump LSAS memory. Um, NBT scan, so it's a net bioscanner to enumerate hosts on the network, and then there's Sparrow Door Back Door. And uh, we'll get into that in a second on some yeah. more details about that.
1: I do want to cut, talk a little bit of, while we're talking about, like, like this is essentially the tools, tactics, and procedures used to kind of uh, identify or enumerate or, or, or kind of attribute them as a group. And uh, I think we've talked about many times before, attribution is hard. If you're just using things like the IP address, you're not attributing uh, an attack to any particular place. You know, we all know there's there's proxies and, and VPNs. So really the method nowadays is to look really closely at the tools, tactics, and procedures that are being used. Uh, and, and sometimes even down to strings and malware that are used or the the comp, what type of... of, of Uh, code they use uh, for their malware, uh, you know, coding platform. But some of these tools, tactics, and procedures used to describe Famous Sparrow seem freaking generic to me, Mark. So I know they all sometimes add up to become more specific, but who doesn't use proxy login exchange vulnerabilities? I I mean, I think tons of groups have been found using those as soon as they came out. Uh, Who doesn't target RDP or, or or look for SharePoint vulnerabilities. We already mentioned Mimikatz is very common. Proc dump and MBT scan are super common. Other than the the backdoor, the specific malware itself, I, I'm starting to see when they describe the things that are identifying the group, you know, you're kind of naming all kinds of 101 tools that I think a lot of cyber threat actors use. Now, now that said, I think what really matters is while everyone may occasionally use the tool, certain groups tend to use the same tools repeatedly, kind of in the same packaging. So maybe there's something to that. But I couldn't help but thinking that that some of the things they're describing to say, this group does, I feel like I see a lot of groups do.
0: Yeah. And I think that's actually what it boiled down to was they said the only differentiating factor is they are the only users of this backdoor we're about to get into. Like the other ones, you're right. Everyone uses those tools. Maybe not the exact variants of Mimikatz that they've been caught using over the past few years, but at least for this backdoor, it seems to be they are the exclusive users, which could mean they're their own unique APT, or it could just be like a subgroup within another APT that's now kind of given its own name, um, which would explain why they have some crossover with other indicators of compromise as well. Um, So the Sparrow Loader, uh, ESET actually went into a pretty in-depth analysis of exactly how it worked. Um, And it was uses a few different methods for evasion and gaining access that I don't think we've talked about a whole lot on this podcast, so I wanted to go through it. And the first one was the loader itself is loaded up via a DLL search order hijacking attack. So what that means is basically any application on your computer and Windows these days it doesn't typically have all the code it wants in that application itself. It'll use libraries, so either libraries it comes with packaged or Windows system libraries that it needs to gain access to. And so when that application boots up, it'll try and locate that library file, the .dll, load it up, and then start running functions out of there. And in some applications, um, it might search for multiple spots for that file. Like if it's one that's included in the application, it might look in the library directory, might look in the Windows system directory, might look in a few different system directories to try and find this thing. And if an attacker is able to write to one of those directories that it's searching for, and it's higher in the list than where the actual legitimate file is, they can go in there and drop a malicious library so that when this application loads up, it searches through and grabs that malicious one first and doesn't even get to the legitimate one. And then when it attempts to call just whatever function out of there, like, get hostname or something. It's overridden with a malicious uh, function instead that does whatever the attacker wants in this case. Um, the Kaseya incident was similar to this in that it used a DLL hijacking style attack with um, a old but legitimate version of uh, Microsoft Defender that suffered from a vulnerability that let them, again, load in their own malicious uh, library instead of the it accessing the legitimate one. And in this case, it looks like the the Sparrow Loader itself is actually three files. So it's a, again, legitimate but old copy of K7 Computing's antivirus software. Uh, It's got a malicious library that it drops along with it, and then an encrypted shellcode file. Pretty simple at that point. So again, uh, it seems to be a more common evasion technique these days to basically bring your own trusted executable, in this case, another AV software, where... You know, maybe it's got a whitelist for that file hash so that some anti-malware engines and EDR won't pay extra attention to it. And then through that, they're able to load up then a malicious library to do all the bad actions. And if that malicious library evades detections or at least doesn't raise enough red flags on its own, it can then enable them to then decrypt the actual shell code and do whatever the heck they want on that host. Um, so... The, how, when Sparrow Loader executes, that antivirus uh, executable it has, finds the malicious DLL first, because it's dropped in the exact same directory as it, which is the first spot in the search order, and loads it up. That DLL then patches the executable itself, that AV software, and then jumps to a launcher function in that patched code. So while it's not a fileless attack, like this all starts with various libraries and executables, After the onset, everything else just in memory is created and executed from there. Um, That launcher loads up the encrypted shellcode, decrypts it, and executes it. And that shellcode, it's responsible for basically building another executable in memory. Like It'll go in and allocate writable and executable memory locations, copy various spots of that shellcode into those locations, and then execute that new uh, executable actually by just calling a hard-coded offset in it so it knows where the entry function is because there's not actually any headers in there. So normally the headers on the PE file, the portable executable will tell you where that entry function is, basically start this function first. And without that, they have to hard-code it in, maybe another evasion technique there to evade evade antivirus that'll look for those PE headers in this new memory location. Um, So like, it's a pretty simple way All in all, to load up a a malicious executable in memory, Uh, but it's good at evading detections in this case. Basically, bring your own DLL and executable and boom, you're got off and running at that point.
1: I mean, simple to people that understand P structure, memory structure, and how Windows
0: deal works That's, in libraries. The shellcode itself is the hard bit, yes. You get all this, but,
1: but I actually think it's a pretty smart way to evade a lot of le- legacy security controls. It's, you know, technical folks will understand it. People that have looked at malware will understand it. DLL hijacking is is, is pretty, uh, like if I recall, it was a vulnerability found that affected Windows OS, but even when they fixed it, all kinds of binaries could, uh, yeah, it's just been around for a long time. So that's why I think you think it's pretty simple. But they're certainly using it in ways that I think evade a lot of security
0: controls, at least legacy ones. Yeah. Um, so the command and control traffic's all over just a normal old HTTPS connection, though the data itself is also encrypted. Uh, ESET found the hard-coded keys.
1: Also simple but effective, right? Exactly. Uh, HTTPS is, is we all understand it, hopefully, and yet most of us do not decrypt it with our security controls, even though we often can, and thus it's a great evasion channel.
0: Exactly. Um, the other interesting bit from it, though, so it's able to gain privilege escalation by adjusting its access token uh, to enable the privilege C debug privilege, or S-E debug privilege. So access tokens in Windows, uh, Short lesson on that, when you log into your computer, you're given this access token assigned to your account. Uh, It's got some security permissions and privileges tied to it. Uh, If you're logged in as an administrator, you actually get two. You get like a system one and then a lower privilege one. When you execute an application normally, it'll tie it to that lower privilege one. If you say run as administrator, it ties it to that higher privilege one. Uh, But all processes that you execute as that user get a copy of that access token and all of the privileges. And this SE debug privilege uh, uh, permission within that access token allows the holder of that token, so the user or the application, to debug another process, meaning reading and writing that process's memory, which means you can then do memory injection. So basically, it modifies its access token in order to get that privilege. And then it uses that to then patch other libraries in Windows and the application itself. Like it does things, p- patches a shutdown library to disable, uh, prevent it from being disabled, uh, patches a network uh, function in order to keep the socket open, even if it's idle. So kind of once it gets going, it's able to elevate its level of access and start patching stuff to make it even more difficult to remove it after the fact, which I thought was
1: kind of interesting. Yeah, cool. Feels similar to the things that old school rootkits often did.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, All in all, highly recommend checking out ESET's article on this on uh, WeLiveSecurity.com. They did a great analysis with all of the, again, tools, tactics, procedures, and a whole bunch of indicators of compromise if you want to check hashes or IP addresses especially if you are in the hospitality space, to make sure that you weren't targeted by this particular attack.
1: Yeah. And the one thing we lack on podcasts that they do very well in their post is there's a lot of graphic images that, you know, if, if you don't really understand everything about how DLLs work in, in various Windows libraries versus what we're talking about, these malware DLLs do... There's a lot of great, you know, graphics to go on in with their posts that really help explain what really
0: is a complex topic for the average user. If you're like me and prefer reading through picture books, it's fantastic.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Only would be better if they made a, a or what is it? A, ask me like I'm five a version of it in video. Then maybe I would understand it. There you go. I'm kidding. <laughs> I, I actually <laughs> understood it quite I well. I
0: got the but. smarts. I got the brain. I understand it. I promise.
1: I have the I have the biggest
0: brain, man. I'm what is it a stable genius, right? Yep, exactly. Stable genius. Uh, so finally, today we'll end with a quick update from the Center for Information Security, no Cybersecurity Infrastructure and Security Agency, CISA. And one of these days, I'm going to get that acronym correct on the first go, and it's going to be glorious. Uh, they published an alert detailing the increased use of the Conti ransomware, which has now affected more than 400 U.S. organizations. And so as with most CISA advisories, they also go through the tools, tactics, and procedures of these threat actors and then end with a bunch of tips on how to not fall victim to this style of attack. Um, A few standouts from their alert, though. So they noted that while Conti works under a ransomware as a service model, like we're seeing for just basically all ransomware attacks these days, it's a bit different from the typical model. So it looks like Conti developers actually pay the people that deploy it a wage instead of giving them a percentage of successful attacks so instead of like giving you the ransomware and then taking 30 percent off the top they just pay them a wage to go out and deploy it then and then i guess they fire them if they don't deploy it on enough systems i don't know but that's i mean i hadn't heard that model in use yet in ransomware as a service. Uh, so that was kind of interesting. I guess it is really becoming more commoditized now where there's basically these entire businesses built around it. And soon they'll start offering healthcare. maybe. Yep. <laughs> um, but so when it comes to the ransomware itself uh, and their delivery methods, they typically gain access through a few main um, modes. And if you listen to Corey's in my webinar, it would have been last week now on the Colonial Pipeline, you'll recognize quite a few of these as the ones that we called out. So like spear phishing. Is well, there's a couple novel. They feel old to me, but a couple novel ones. True. But keep uh, going. So spear phishing is the big one. They said they use campaigns with both attachments and or links. Uh, Word office attachments seem to be a popular one with embedded scripts to download other malware loaders like TrickBot or Cobalt Strike to aid in lateral movement as part of it. Stuff that we've seen before. uh Stolen or weak RDP credentials. So if you've got remote access via RDP enabled on the internet pretty easy to get your way in through there potentially another one was phone calls so phone phishing that
1: one was yeah that that was that was the i mean it we know it exists but nowadays it seems kind of novel like i can't imagine i i guess the reason vishing exists is there i i'm i'm probably stereotyping now but i think it mostly targets older folks like the microsoft calls the remote desktop calls but it feels like a technique that's very 101, and yet it's still obviously in use, so it must be having success.
0: Yeah. Um, they also the next
1: one you're gonna to get to is is uh, the same. I'll, I'll comment on that, but go ahead and what's the next one?
0: <laughs> fake software promoted via
1: search engine optimization. Yeah, the search engine optimization part of that is is neat. You know, that, that means they're putting keywords in their web pages and, and doing things so that if you search certain things, this will pop up. But the fake software part Man, that feels so two thousands to me. You know, before we had ransomware, we had scareware, you know, the kind of thing that says, "Hey, you have a virus. go get this this antivirus product, this fake software to fix it, it it's it It must still be working, but it kind of I, I thought it was weird because I'm like, do
0: people still fall for that crap? <laughs> I mean, obviously I don't all, I hope I haven't fallen for it, but I see it all the time when like you're looking for some specific application or some, I don't know, anything and you search for it, you will occasionally get those somewhere in the front page of your Google results. Like something that is clearly bogus with just download me buttons plastered all over. So I could see that's that's kind of the funny
1: thing that's to me and you, it seemed like I, 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 I see that as clearly bogus, which is why I, you know, like I'm agreeing. I, I, I see it. I just am so surprised that it's effective. But I guess it's like spam, right? You know, if you're hitting a millions and millions of searches, it only takes 0.001% to to have a, a decent return, I guess. But it just seems that, you know, it's not new. By the way, obviously the, the first two, the the RDP and the spear phishing and phishing, those are stuff we do see quite a bit. Uh, I guess you could argue that's old too, right? So maybe I'm being silly by arguing some seems older than the other. Uh, Everyone should know that they shouldn't have public RDPs by now, and yet it's still obviously the case that many still have that. So maybe all of them are kind of 101. It's just that apparently the defenders are not doing a good job at doing best practices or blocking
0: the 101 attempts. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, The other delivery methods include ZLoader and other botnets. So again, using other people's uh, bot herders that they've collected all these hosts and then finally deploying ransomware on them. (laughs) I got to say the ZLoader,
1: (laughs) that that feels as old as time.
0: Yeah. You know, (laughs) I don't malware shame people, Corey. So (laughs) (laughs) I just don't get it. Yeah, I know. I'm with you on that. And then also, so the final one was exploiting common vulnerabilities and external assets. So they listed Eternal Blue, Print Nightmare, and O Zero, Zero Logon. So the real big Windows ones from the past few years. If you're leaving the applicable ports open, like SMB exposed, man, if you've got SMB v1 exposed to the internet now, I guarantee that this is the least of your issues.
1: Yeah, that, that's why this is such a like a depressing read for me, in that you know it it feels like a the polar opposite of F- Famous Sparrow where the malware was using some pretty novel ways to both get people infected at hotel networks and to hide itself. But this reads like all the things uh, you know for malware delivery back in 2005. So the fact that they have to post this, the fact that CISA had to put this up, and you know we know that 400 attacks have been successful. So it, it just was kind of a depressing read for me because it means at least 400 companies
0: were not doing 101. Yeah, exactly. Um, very depressing on those. So when it, after it gained access, though, so it used things like router scan, which is a penetration testing tool to scan and brute force routers, cameras, NAS devices, basically any IoT or consumer device. Uh, that has a web interface. It would use Kerberos attacks to gain admin hashes to try and brute force them offline then as well. Uh, they commonly exploited RMM and other remote desktop software as backdoors. So again, that's smarter. That's smarter in the scanning for IoT with web applications. Now we're getting to more modern territory. Yep. Uh, they use Windows, internals and Mimikatz to obtain user hashes and clear text credentials. So common trend even in just today's podcast, as you're seeing Um, And then Rclone, which is a command line program for exfiltrating data, Uh, because as part of the Conti ransomware, they are a double extortion model where they will steal your data, encrypt what's still on your networks, and then demand ransom in order to decrypt it and not leak everything else onto the Internet. So, I, I mean, another big ransomware variant making the rounds uh, I'll say CISA did give some good mitigation tips, which, I mean, they feel like basics for anyone that's been listening or paying attention, but they are still good tips. Like, no, no, all of the tips are fantastic. And I, I think that's the,
1: the, the takeaway is do the basic blocking and tackling. <laughs> the tips haven't changed, well, but what hasn't happened is not everyone has executed them.
0: Yep. But we'll go through them anyway to reiterate, reiterate them. First and foremost, use MFA on any remotely accessed network. So MFA, wherever the heck you can. I don't think we've ever talked about that before, Mark. (laughs) No, no, clearly never. Um, Implement network segmentation and traffic filtering. So basically adopting zero trust, at least in a basic format. Um, Vulnerability management. So making sure that you're identifying vulnerable systems, have a good patch management schedule to make them not vulnerable anymore. Again, get rid of that low-hanging fruit so attackers can't just easily walk in. Uh, removing unnecessary applications so just it hygiene if you don't need an app especially one that has elevated access remove it it's one less thing that could possibly get compromised through you know an unpatched vulnerability or a supply chain attack that makes sense too Uh, they specifically called out endpoint detection response so again not just relying on endpoint protection but also deploying tools that can catch what that potentially misses and respond to it quickly and then regularly auditing your user's activity logs. So again, kind of like zero trust, just assume the breach and look for that potentially malicious traffic on your network to identify and stop one of these ransomware attacks. But like you said, like yeah. a lot of these are basic. And if you just follow the basics, you'll be in a pretty good spot to defend yeah. against it. I would say it's not new to us. It's been around for a while. But
1: I would say the endpoint detection response one in particular is maybe a little more modern advice and that... Uh, By the way the simple way to separate endpoint protection versus endpoint detection and response they're often delivered together but endpoint protection is mostly about pre-execution malware prevention meaning just trying to make sure the malware never gets on your computer and never runs on your computer and obviously that's preferred uh to to happen it's it's not always the case though we know even from our own report with zero day malware Uh, often gets past the first line of defense. So endpoint detection is more about uh, finding or detecting the post-execution threat, the malware that has ran completely or started to run by looking more for indicators of what it's doing, not just trying to find it before it runs. So while it was always a great tip to have have endpoint detection response, I think it's, a, it's a, at least of all the other tips, it's a more modern security control and it's one that less people have. You know, everyone has AV, everyone has basic preventative anti-malware. But endpoint detection of response is really the tool to find endpoint breaches in your network and mitigate them as quickly as possible, sometimes automatically. So of the, the the newness of defenses, I think that's probably one that some of you
0: may not have and should consider. Yep. And again, if you want to check out all the indicators of attack, indicators of compromise, tools, tactics, and procedures, the alert is AA21-265A. Uh, like yeah, I said. very
1: easy to remember. Just just pop that in the URL. No, I'm kidding. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, yes, correct.
1: Uh, but hey, twenty one two six five a. Yes, we got that it forever now.
0: Yep. Yeah. Hey, I've already memorized that. I didn't read that, that uh, at all. It was just out of my brain. What is it? CVE twenty twenty one forty four four four. That four 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 office yeah. document but one.
1: That was because of alliteration. Four zero four four four. I think we all could memorize it. Not as much alliteration in A21265A. I, I guess the A's.
0: <laughs> Maybe if we say it enough, we'll all remember it. Quiz hey, time next week on the podcast.
1: 21265 <laughs>
0: All right. Let's sign off before we lose any more listeners.
1: <laughs> Are you telling me listeners don't love to hear me yell A into their ear?
0: I'm Fozzie. Let's Does do anyone
1: it. even remember Fozzie from Happy Days? Hey. I don't know Fozzie
0: from Happy Days. I know Fozzie from the memes about happy days. So okay. At least the, at least the memes keep you informed. Yes. <laughs> I feel old. Hey everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at X-O-R-R-O underscore. Corey's at Secadept, and the both of us are at hashtag the443podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week. Smash that
1: like! Ring all those bells! Blow off the fireworks! 443, now! Sale price! Only one time a year! (laughs) Like, like, like!
0: All right, I didn't realize we were YouTubers now.